obviously on renewable generation, those are spread out, they're distributed, and they've got to have a network to transmit that across the country. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we're talking about the need for more transmission on the grid. A lot more. Last year, the National Renewable Energy Lab released a study to analyze how much infrastructure would be needed for the U.S. to get to 100% clean energy by 2035. It was a little eye-watering. Current wind and solar needs to triple. And transmission, the lines connecting it all together, need to triple as well. It reminds me of a study I once did in business school to see how many solar panels it would take to meet the world's energy needs. I lost that report a long time ago, but someone else calculated it would cover over 115,000 square miles about the size of Arizona. 2035 is in the blink of an eye. Why even write something so ambitious? Sure, we want to believe we can get there if we all try really hard, but reality always rears its ugly head. First off, someone has to put up the money. Most of the time, that requires a utility requesting permission from regulators to charge its customers more money. Probably more challenging, you have to get this permitted, and that may require asking hundreds of landowners very nicely if they can build across their land. My guests and I spend the majority of our conversation discussing transmission. They're currently serving as the owner's engineer on an ambitious high-voltage direct current line from Quebec to New York City. This will supply the Big Apple with enough renewable energy to power over a million homes. It's 300 miles long, almost entirely underground. It didn't come together overnight. But as we discuss in the interview, it's not entirely pointless to discuss a goal you can't easily achieve. Like almost every goal you or I have set in our lives, we often have to aim higher to land at the spot where we want to be. There's no doubt 2035 will be a lot cleaner than it is today. The question now becomes, how close can we get to triple transmission? My guest today is Mike Case, Senior Vice President of Energy at WSP, a global engineering firm. If you've worked in energy, you've probably crossed paths with WSP before. They were most recently on my radar in episode 165. WSP is leading all EPCM work for the underground storage section of the ACES Delta Hydrogen Project. The transmission project I mentioned earlier is WSP's Champlain Hudson Power Express HVDC line, which will deliver hydropower from eastern Canada to to New York. That project broke ground in 2022 and is expected to be complete in 2026. Mike and I used the NREL study as a jumping off point discussing just how someone would go about tripling all transmission lines over the next 12 years. We also discussed how solutions like storage can lighten this load. We explore how we'll likely see a lot more DC transmission lines, which haven't seen much action in this country until now. And we also discuss how strategic it is to simply bury all new transmission lines. Out of sight, out of mind, right? <laughs> I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike Case. We're here with Mike Case, Senior Vice President of Energy for WSP. And Mike, a study from the National Renewable Energy Lab says the number of transmission lines over the next 20 years will need to triple in order to meet our clean energy needs. Let's start with the first question. Is something like that even feasible, tripling the amount of transmission lines out there? 
Yeah, no, thanks, Jay. Yeah, it's obviously a daunting task in front of us right now and clearly a challenge that I think the industry needs to step up to. Whether or not it's double or triple, clearly these are very aspirational and aggressive targets that will be extremely difficult to achieve. I think the figures need to be stated, though, to maintain the pressure to tackle the challenges we face in getting this infrastructure built to meet those clean energy needs. I do believe a solid dent can be made in the amount of infrastructure that needs to be built. But keep in mind, a lot of these have been in development for close to a few decades here in the development and permitting for some of these transmission lines. Thankfully, some of those are actually beginning construction, which is great to see. One of those being the Champlain Hudson Power Express. So ultimately, we're moving in the right direction. But again, definitely a daunting task in front of us. I think making the statement of what the needs are is going to continue to maintain that pressure to force the resolution to some of the obstacles around permitting and review cycles to make certain that the amount of construction that can occur does occur. From there, I truly believe the challenge is going to be the workforce to get this accomplished. Everything from the planning and permitting to the engineering and design through the actual construction will be a challenge to meet these targets as well. This is where industry partners, whether it's the utilities, the developers, the engineers, the contractors, will all need to come together collaboratively to even have a remote chance of meeting these ambitions. Absolutely. WSP does a lot. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to. How are you fitting into the mix here? Everything from the upfront planning, permitting, routing associated with transmission lines to the engineering and design, as well as program management services, which also includes construction management. So really the full life cycle of transmission assets. We've got full in-house capabilities given the scale and size of our organization and the growth that we've seen exponentially over the past few years with some of our key acquisitions have really opened up those services to provide that full service offering, whether it's for the utilities or the developers, looking at these major transmission line assets that need to be built over the next couple of decades. And what kind of jobs are you finding yourselves getting? Are you doing greenfield transmission lines? Are you doing just like a lot of upgrades on the existing right-of-ways and everything? Seems like that'd be the easier one to do, right? Yeah, a mixture of both, I would say. I mentioned Champlain Hudson. WSP is acting as the program management and owner's engineer's services on that new greenfield transmission line. But we are also getting engaged in the reconductoring of existing lines. We are getting engaged on looking at existing right-of-ways and how those can be leveraged from additional transmission assets and looking at those opportunities as well. Tell me a little bit about what's new with the technology. So when I worked at Duke Energy, I didn't do too many transmission line projects. I did a lot of substation stuff, which I kind of liked because you didn't have to bother too many people. You just kind of went inside the fence and locked yourself up from the inside. But with transmission lines, what's going on there? You mentioned conductors. What would we be surprised to be hearing about these days with that? We're looking at new technology, right? And obviously, as the industry continues to evolve, you hope the technology evolves with it. We're not building transmission lines that are 70 years old, and we'd be remiss to stay with the same technology. So ultimately, from the conductor standpoint, we are seeing new technologies come out, obviously looking at the capacity of those lines, being able to utilize them on existing poles, existing right-of-ways. So a lot goes into, obviously, the design and the engineering of those relative to just the size and the capacity. And a lot of testing is going on right now relative to some of those new technologies, relative to the conductor's themselves and looking at increasing the current 
carrying capacity, the energy capacity of those lines, so that when we do go out and reconduct or reusing existing assets, ultimately at the end of the day, we'll be able to transmit more energy over those lines by utilizing the updated technologies. When you're doing updates, are you able to save the towers? Are we just adding new conductor most of the time? What's usually the easiest way to do that kind of retrofit? It's a little bit of both, looking at the existing assets and whether or not they can be reutilized with the new technologies that are being provided. Looking at both, obviously looking at new poles, whether or not that makes more sense, just reusing the existing right-of-way in that capacity and looking at reconductoring. I think it was Smart Path New York with NIPA did something similar, and that's kind of back in my hometown. So I got to see some of that construction when I go back to upstate New York and looking at what they've been able to accomplish there by still using the existing right-of-way, but looking at new poles and new wires to increase the capacity there. So there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of options available when we look at it more holistically in that approach. One of the hardest things I think is public engagement. <laughs> you yes. know, and look, I mean, everyone wants the transmission. No one wants the lines. And so what have been some of the ways that we've been able to help with getting buy-in on the fact that you got more distributed generation, but how do you make that case on the my backyard level? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. That's an area of tremendous growth for WSP specifically, but it's really driven by the need. You look at the developers and the utilities, and like you said, the challenges that they're facing associated with being able to build the infrastructure. Like you said, nobody wants it in their backyard. And I think a lot of it was around the education and it's really kind of committing the time and the effort that it takes to work with the community and the stakeholders to ultimately make certain that they're on board and they fully understand what's being accomplished. Not only is it the above ground transmission lines when we talk about getting from the rural to the urban environments, but now we're also seeing challenges relative to offshore wind and now bringing that power kind of in a reversed flow direction in areas that typically have not seen these major utility infrastructure projects occurring. Now they're going to be occurring in their backyard. And I think it's educating them around the benefits associated with the why. And, you know, one clear example of that is obviously the clean energy aspect of that and what that's doing to the environment that we live in. And at the end of the day, what that's doing to help us achieve our decarbonization efforts more holistically by building this infrastructure to allow the use of cleaner and more renewable energy sources. Going back to this original question, you know, three times the transmission, right? What should we prioritize? You know, what would be the most bang for the buck? And I think what makes that challenging is, is that, again, these things are just Distributed. They're spread all over. So I'm thinking, my goodness, it's going to be even harder to tie it all in. At the end of the day, I think getting the critical right-of-ways permitted is going to be key. As you said, it's really driven by generation. And obviously on renewable generation at large utility scale, those are spread out, they're distributed, and they've got to have a backbone and a network to be able to connect into to transmit that across the country, basically. To me, I think the priority needs to be relative to those critical right-of-ways ways, getting those permitted. It's going to take federal and state mandates to help push those. And I think that's why we need to maintain the pressure on the need for transmission. And, you know, the DOE has the National Interest Electric Transmission Corridor effort underway right now. They're looking at those and looking at how we can interconnect the various ISOs and taking advantage of really kind of a backbone that interconnects the grids and allows the renewable developers to be able to interconnect into that a little bit easier. It's 
not to say that we don't also need to take advantage of those existing right-of-ways. And as we talked about looking at reconductoring, looking at increasing the capacity associated with those. So I do think they need to occur in parallel. I think those are more done under capital programs of existing developers or transmission owners that needs to continue while we look at the major developments across the critical right-of-ways and the critical infrastructure backbone in these energy corridors holistically. Mike, utilities, those folks who are financing these sorts of things, they only have a limited amount that they can go to, say, their regulatory agencies. I'm thinking when I worked at Duke, they had to do cost recovery, right? These kinds of capital investments required them going and getting approval essentially to raise the rates to pay for it. So if you're going to triple the amount of transmission lines, I mean, you're also going to have to go and seek out that money. So where do you think the limit is to fund these sorts of things? It's a very deep question there, right? And obviously the economics of all of this need to pan out everything from the investors that are putting money into these, whether it's new transmission assets and being done by developers that are looking at the investment associated with it, and obviously the return on their investment. But then also, as you mentioned, the utilities who are also looking at these and building them into their rate case and going through the public utility regulators ultimately to seek that approval in increasing the rates. And ultimately, with both of those instances, you know, I think there's going to be challenges associated with getting them approved relative to the actual rates. And how do you justify that the public understands why the rates are increasing to accommodate for this sheer need? I think as well, too, we're seeing right now, I think more recently with the offshore wind developers who have entered into power purchase agreements and looking at those from the perspective of there's a lot that has changed over the last couple of years since those PPAs may have been signed and potentially looking to renegotiate those because at the end of the day, supply chain issues, inflation, all of the above have impacted those costs. And for them to be locked in at some of these PPAs and not being able to have that cost recovery component of it, what type of investment is that? I think there are a lot of challenges on the economics of all of this that definitely need to be weighed in to the equation. And again, another challenge that the industry needs to face when it comes to the sheer need for this amount of transmission as well. Right. You know, and I was thinking about you're talking about permitting and everything. You're talking about the yeah. grid operators. And we'll see if I can try to distill this so the listeners can understand it. You got a lot of permits in the queue with a lot of these solar projects, for instance. You're loading up the queue and the number of caseworkers that can handle these permits. And I don't know if you guys are competing for the same resources as the solar operators, but what happens is is these people at these ISOs, PJM over in the east and MISO in the center of the country, these people get poached by solar companies. <laughs> instance. You know what I mean? And so they're always understaffed because those folks are getting hired away for, you know, I'd guess more money. What the problem is, then the people who are trying to put the projects in the ground are slowed down. Yeah, as a result of that, right? Exactly. And I think that kind of comes back to my statement about the workforce that's necessary to get this accomplished and really kind of the collaborative nature. Obviously, we're all in business. And right now in the energy transition, it's a great time to be in energy. But to that point, we're all competing for the same 
same resources and those resources are limited. And that's where you talked about the queue and the permitting process. It's having the resources to bear to be able to review those, approve those in a timely fashion so that we're not talking about decades of approvals, right? We're talking about years that ultimately we can get the shovels in the ground and get these built. And that's where I think it needs to be a little bit more collaborative spirit. And that's sometimes easier said than done, but that's where I think the industry has to come together in that fashion so that ultimately they have the resources to do the reviews. We have the resources to do the engineering, the permitting associated with these projects and anything we can do to help streamline that. I think we need to come together as an industry and support federal state agencies that are suffering from those issues right now. Mike, I had a guest on about two years ago. This was episode 132. I guess is actually near your neck of the woods in Florida, near near Palm Beach. And he was big on bearing transmission lines. His group was really advocating for that, especially in places like California, where they have wildfires every year, Gulf Coast, where a hurricane could hit. You know, you're in Florida. So (laughs) how much more interest do you think we're starting to see in actually bearing big high voltage transmission lines? Yeah, I would say clearly relative to wildfires, I think from a safety perspective to human life, obviously the tragedies that have occurred, yes, it makes sense to do so, right? Anything that we can do to stave off those dangers associated with it, and clearly they've been linked specifically to these type of instances, I think it makes sense that we have to really put it through the lens and look at it from that perspective. Additionally, clearly from a reliability and resiliency perspective, it also makes sense. You mentioned with the hurricanes and ultimately looking at how do we become more resilient to those type of natural disasters. And we've seen that in Florida. They've done a great job of kind of looking at where is it best. And a lot of that historically has been on the distribution side. And that makes perfect sense as the starting point to make a more robust grid is on the distribution. I think you'll see more of that now for the wildfires as well, too, I think, on the distribution level. For the transmission level, however, though, it's got to be much more selective. And to your point, that that's really given just the sheer cost and complexity of undergrounding transmission assets. They can be 10 to 20 times more expensive and take years to complete, which ultimately has impacts to the ratepayers. That'll be a challenge that has to go through the various regulatory agencies as well. So it's not without its challenges that I think ultimately at the end of the day, it really needs to be selective in those transmission levels that we look at. I think when it comes to the wildfires, and this is something that we've looked at and are involved with is where it's feasible. An alternative that needs to be considered is really the community scale microgrids and looking at kind of that distributed generation model, albeit needs to be in a clean energy fashion to allow for those lines to be de-energized during periods of high wildfire risks and the ability to maintain some level of service during that time. So I think there are alternatives out there that we can look at to completely undergrounding the transmission lines because that will have to be a selective process where that occurs. Yeah, it can do that everywhere. I think PG&E has pledged quite a bit of money toward that effort, but you were talking about shutting down the lines in the event when there's high risk for wildfires. And I believe what you're talking about is not necessarily that it's dry, it's because there's high wind 
Correct. Well, both ultimately conditions that are ripe for wildfire and then the wind. And obviously looking at those predictions, do the utilities take those preemptive measures to de-energize those transmission lines? And obviously at the end of that line is a transmission level substation that goes to a distribution substation that feeds your home. It feeds the police office. It feeds the hospital. So are there mechanisms to put more localized generation at the end of that line that ultimately we can still maintain? critical level of service should they have to take that preemptive measure. In high wind events, what's happening, you got three lines and the wind will actually slap together. That's usually what causes the wildfire. So you guys are building new transmission lines. Is there any technology you can do to keep that from happening? I mean, you can't just tether one to the other or something like that to keep them spaced out. (laughs) Yeah, I'd have to inquire with the experts on that one as well, too. Obviously, those are the type of solutions that need to be thought of, though, and need to challenge the industry to see how we can further support the safety aspect associated with it, given the conditions we live in now. Another solution, a lot of this is being done, more renewables on the grid. Renewables are mainly DC when they come out. What about high voltage DC transmission lines? I've heard a little bit about this. I know there have been a couple of efforts to bring wind out from the middle of the country to where it's needed. Tell us a little bit about that, because I never did a high voltage DC transmission line. I don't think many people have. And so is that really starting to capture the imagination? Oh, no, definitely. And it's not just talk anymore as well. There's actually ongoing installations here in the U.S. as well, too, which is great to see. Historically, you see these over in Europe and overseas are these interconnectors, basically, that are HVDC that link various networks to allow those interagency coordination efforts of the grid. And HVDC is just a tremendous way to transmit higher levels of energy with less copper on the HVDC side as opposed to the HVAC. I mentioned earlier Champlain Hudson, the Power Express in the Northeast is an HVDC cable that's going to transmit clean energy over 300 miles into New York City from the Canadian border. In these long distances, large amounts of high energy HVDC interconnectors make sense. Utilizing them for these major transmission corridors and again, the interlinks between the isolated ISOs also make sense. You're able to do more with less in that capacity and really look to do those. There's a project, NECEC, up in the Northeast as well, too. I believe that's Maine to New Hampshire that is looking at that. You mentioned the ones out West. TransWest is one of those that has an HVDC component, again, linking renewable energy sources into the greater grid. And then finally, I'll say another area that you're going to continue to hear, the industry for HVDC will be offshore wind development. Clearly, given the size and the location of the lease areas that are being developed, 800 to 2 gigawatts of power that is looking to come onshore that needs to be delivered and HVDC, the offshore developers are looking at those solutions as well, too. Kind of interesting that it's happening in New York in that where it all started, right? Is, yeah, uh, correct. In the Edison days and they were doing yep. DC lines at higher voltage, it's more efficient. Yeah, you can transmit more that way. Installation costs and overall reliability associated with it is also greater in that capacity as well, too. At the ends, you have to have the converter stations. Clearly, a lot of infrastructure, it's basically another substation that needs to be built to convert it from DC back to AC, because obviously the rest of the grid is AC. So you do have those aspects that you need to consider into the equation as well. But again, when you talk about the interlinks between those two, the savings is worth the cost there. 
at PowerGen earlier this year, I did a panel on energy storage and what is the best economic model for that. And we got into a lot of talk about all the options for issues like what we're talking about today. Like you got a surplus of renewables. In some places, I talk about this all the time. My listeners probably get tired of me mentioning it. And, you know, California, they're curtailing solar power. They're making so much of it. My guest from Ernst & Young, EY, he had a nice little chart that showed all the solutions for taking care of it, right? And so you got storage is one of them. Transmission is one of them. Generation assets that are flexible ramp up and down. There's a lot of different sources like that. So where does something like storage make sense? And where does transmission make sense? I think that's really the two choices that a place like California really has. You either wheel it out of there or you store it and use it later, right? Yeah. Storage we really need in large scale. I do think batteries have their role, but the scale of them, the duration of them, the locality of them, until we continue to expand the technology, which we are, batteries are going to be limited in the storage capacity. They're clearly going to have their use, but longer duration storage to have that spinning reserve. A great example is what's happening in the ACES Delta project out in Utah, which ultimately at the end of the day is hydrogen storage. WSP has actually just completed the drilling of two salt caverns. We're in the process of solution mining those right now that will ultimately become the largest hydrogen storage capacity in the U.S. that will be utilized in power generation, basically gas turbines that will eventually hopefully run on full hydrogen. It'll start with a blend of hydrogen that will give us the spinning reserve because you've got that hydrogen storage capacity. So when the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine, you still have a clean source of energy that ultimately gives us that spinning reserve to then transmit power. This one happens to transmit into LA DWP. So it's actually helping decarbonize the grid in California as well too. It's those type of solutions that we need to look at how we can ultimately utilize storage capacities, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's batteries, whether it's pump storage, and still a need for transmission to transmit those accordingly. So I do think they're still interlinked on the large scale storage aspect of it. But clearly options out there. I think the grid needs to be more flexible for those diverse options of storage and generation that we're going to see on the grid in the future. You bet. I'm glad you brought up the ACES project out there. If you weren't going to talk about it, I was going to brag on <laughs> you guys for you. Yes. <laughs> so when you're weighing these options, is transmission always the most cost-effective solution among the other solutions for this issue, like storage, like EVs managing the grid to an extent? Where do you think ultimately it fits among all these solutions? Similar to what we were talking about earlier of undergrounding, I think there's going to be instances where these other solutions, storage and more localized, flexible generation solutions are going to be more cost effective. And ultimately, they do need to be screened in that capacity and could be the alternative solution to new transmission. But I think, again, at the end of the day, as much generation as we want to try to put in, no matter if it's localized, no matter if we're talking about EV and what that means in the future, the sheer amount of capacity that we have on the existing transmission assets we know needs to continue to increase. So again, I think as much as there may be cost-effective solutions that don't involve transmission, we're still going to have to factor that the transmission assets are going to need to be upgraded, especially you brought up EV, but really when we talk about the electrification of all things, buildings and industry and manufacturing and all of the above, no matter the solution of the generation, the transmission, 
transmission and the distribution assets are going to need to be there to support that transition. Mike, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. I think it's going to be an enabler for the clean energy transmission. Crude oil. Remains with its ebbs and flows. Nuclear. SMRs and their role in the future of clean energy. Coal, and I'll add coal with carbon capture. I was going to say carbon capture and sequestration with coal. Yep. Wind. I think offshore is the key for wind right now. Solar. It continues to grow aggressively, which is great to see in the market right now. Biofuels. Great alternative clean energy fuel source where available. Hydroelectric. I think we got to look at pump storage opportunities as the future. Geothermal. Very locational-based solution, so not fit everywhere, but where it is, definitely need to consider. Energy storage. As we mentioned, long-term needed, such as hydrogen. Energy efficiency. I came from that industry, so every little bit counts. And then finally, fusion power. Yeah, fantastic breakthroughs and exciting times we live in. All right, Mike Case, WSP, thank you so much for your time. All right, thanks, Jay. That was Mike K, Senior Vice President of Energy at WSP. Mike is based in the West Palm Beach area. As I mentioned, he's close to another friend of show, Mike Beeler, who I discussed bearing transmission lines at length with in episode 132. I want to thank Christy Harley at WSP and Annie Longsworth at Carol Cohn on purpose for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave positive review on itunes that gets the word out music was produced by sean stroop at stroop loops that wraps up episode 170 be sure to join us next week we learn just how large small modular reactors can really be until then i'm jay downhower we'll see you next time